0: This is the Sugar Science and we have, uh, we're welcoming you to Ask the Expert, a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in the type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. We're recording this event and we'll post it on the Sugar Science uh, site YouTube channel shortly after presentation. If you have uh, questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. So today we have as our guest coming to us from UCSD, U- University of California, San Diego, Dr. Kyle Galton. And um, I'm gonna just, I'll give a little bit about him and then I'll let him talk about his sort of background. But he's an assistant professor at the Department of Pediatrics at UC San Diego. He has a BAS in computer science from University of Pennsylvania, PhD in genetics and molecular biology from University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And then he did postdoctoral training at the University of Oxford and Stanford University. So yeah, kind of hitting all the, the big universities and doing some really interesting work down there in. Um, San Diego, a lot of people are talking about this work. Um, And uh, I would also just comment to say that I've been following the work and during 2020, your lab was publishing like crazy. And that trend continued into 2021 with sort of like samples from the menu in 20, you know, 21 were um, interpreting the type one diabetes risk using genetics and single cell epigenomics that was in nature. Um, uh, And then another one, systemic analysis of binding of transcription factors to non-coding variants, another nature. And then uh, single cell chromatin accessibility reveals pancreatic islet cell type and state uh, specific regulatory programs of diabetes and and nature genetics. So these are really high profile journals and that's really saying something I think about the work that you're doing. I think this particular paper kind of spells out the scale of what you and your lab have been up to, and then you can sort of dive in, you know, after this. But it's—I um, really like this paper. The large-scale genetic association and single-cell accessible chromatin mapping defines cell-type-specific mechanisms of T1D risk. It was in Bioarchives in January 2021, and um, if I can just do a thumbnail sketch of it, uh, the work was just massive. I mean. You, it was translating uh, GWAS of complex disease into mechanistic uh, insight requires a comprehensive understanding of risk-variant effects on disease sub cell types. Yes, totally true. Um, and you guys are wading into this uh, fearlessly, I think. And so what you did was you combined sort of the genetic association mapping and single-cell epigenomics so that's sort of a finer line, right? And they performed the largest to date GWAS of, t- of type 1 diabetes in 489, 679 samples, imputed into 59.2 million variants. From there, they kind of distilled it down. They identified 74 novel association signals, including several large effect rare um, variants. So then they did fine mapping, and they got 141 total signals, and that really improved the res- resolution of causal credible um, very, uh, variant sort of credible sets that they mapped to non-coding sequence. So this is so interesting, and I, you know, I'd love for you to, you know, sort of tell us what's going on in the lab, you know, where you are, um, elaborate on that very cool paper, and yeah, just fill us in.
1: Sure, sure. And no, I'd be happy to. I was going to say that that uh, we probably published too many papers last year because we weren't doing much else. So we're <laughs> sitting at home for <laughs> for Well, for our...
0: it's a good use of time.
1: <laughs> um, but yeah, but thank you so much. Um, so I, I guess I can I can say very briefly a, a bit about myself I mean, you, you touched on um, um, education. And, and, and I'll, I'll just say that uh, I was thinking this morning that I've uh, been studying diabetes genetics for about 15 years, uh, just turned 40. So uh, uh, pretty much ever, ever since I started in grad school studying the genetics of diabetes, uh, for a long time it was uh, uh, type two diabetes, uh, both graduate school and, and postdoc. Uh, the labs I worked in primarily focused on type two diabetes and, and when we moved here to San Diego. Um, shift our focus a, a bit to, to type 1 diabetes and I, I think the genetics of type 1 uh share some similarities to, to type 2 but many many differences and, and uh very interesting to to have been able to to try to use genetics to uh kind of try to unlock some of the biology um underlying the trait um so yeah. i will share my screen now for, uh, for moment um
0: side. yes
1: so um yeah so thanks monica i mean you you, you kind of uh, uh, detailed at a high level uh, um, the, uh, some of the things we're, we're interested in, um, in in our lab and, and this paper that, that just came out in, in Nature recently, uh, I think exemplifies a, a lot of our, our general interest for trying to combine genetic mapping uh, of type 1 diabetes um, with uh, mapping the epigenome uh, of specific cell types that are relevant to the disease and, and through the combination of those two. Um, uh, hope to learn something about the, the biology uh, underlying the trait, genes involved in the trait, um, and, and, and try to give insight to, to maybe guide uh, how, um, how the disease is potentially developing and, and perhaps uh, uh, um, give some insight into potential therapeutics um, as well. So, okay. Uh, so I just have a handful of slides to, to detail this. So, um, so we study population uh, genetics of uh, type one diabetes. So, so uh, to start, um, what, what we're talking about in, in terms of what we're studying in the top left are um, uh, variation that exists between individuals. Uh, the primary sources of variation between people um, are uh, called SNPs, uh, single base pair changes. So, so that's the majority of, of risk of a disease are single base pair changes between individuals, uh, as well as um, what are called indels, insertion deletions, which are just short insertion deletions of sequence. So, this most of what we study. It's not all. Uh, uh the variation that, that exists in the genome, but but that's that’s primarily what we're interested in in studying. And, and, and e- even though these uh, create s- small changes, and in many cases just single changes in the genome, they, they uh, can have profound effects on um, people's risk of, of developing disease. Uh, and the way we study these variants is, uh, it's actually a fairly simple paradigm, uh, uh, which is essentially to collect uh, individuals who are cases, uh, uh, type 1 diabetics, people are controls, most of the data we get are from public repositories. So all the data that was included in this nature study was was it was not genetic data we collected ourselves. It was either available in dbGaB or, or biobanks. And, and uh, as the resources for human genetics have, have expanded, particularly for biobanks, the availability of these the massive data sets uh, enables uh, the, this type of science. Um, but so we have case samples, control samples, and then we're essentially comparing the relative frequency of the, the variants in cases versus controls and then we do this for all variants across the, the genome, and that's uh, what's being shown on the bottom, and that's what a GWAS GOS study is. Yeah. Um, so can I is, just
0: interject for one second? Yeah. So, yeah, sure. so these, um, just sort of a shout out to sort of all the postdocs in the room. So these tool, um, these repositories are available right now, and you know, open for business basically. So people can interested in type one, can kind of approach them from different. Um, you know, disciplines and different interests and, and kind of utilize these repositories and really kind of, I, I guess I want to say, go fishing, right?
1: I mean, these are really phenomenal resources. I mean, revolutionary. And the UK Biobank, um, FinGen uh, is another massive resource. Um, um, is bio like Japan Biobank, there's other biobanks. And so these are, you know, massive collections of, uh, of, of uh, samples from population, but they have incredibly detailed phenotype information um, genotype information in, in most cases and um yeah i mean and it allows you to study any trait you're interested in that, that, that uh, surveyed in that, that population um right. so yeah, we're interested in type 1 diabetes but, but for any trait you may be interested in okay uh, you can do that as well and also they make a lot of the resources now like you don't even have to do the analyses yourself in many cases like fingen for example, provides all for like the summary data. So the results of the GWAS is for anybody to, to go get. So you don't actually have to redo all, all these studies um, from scratch. And, and they're also increasingly integrated in, in many other databases as well. So really, really incredible resources and extremely valuable for understanding the genetics of these traits. And also, again, a lot of value for, um, for under, understanding therapeutic targets.
0: Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. wanted to kind of shout out to those resources. Thanks for elaborating.
1: Yeah, no, of course. Um, yeah, like I said, it, it enables all, all this work in ways that would not have been possible, you know, five, five, ten 10 years ago. Um, yeah. Okay, and then so, but through these studies for, for type one diabetes, in this case, um, they've been fairly successful in terms of identifying risk loci for the uh, risk loci for the disease. So um, as of uh, um, like Last year, or a couple of years ago, there were about 60 loci known to affect the trait, uh, which together explain about 80% of the heritability of the trait. Most of the heritability uh, uh, is explained by single locus, uh, uh, MHC, Um, uh, and then there's a handful of other loci like insulin and and PTPN22 that that have reasonably large effects on on disease risk. And then as you get beyond that, that there's a a long tail of variants that have relatively modest uh, modest effects on the disease. So, uh, and I say that because, so even though these 60 loci explain 80% of the heritability, probably mm-hmm. getting into hundred percent, like explaining all of the heritability of the trait will encompass many, many, many additional risk loci that, that have probably increasingly small effects that are common. There's probably a lot of rare variants as well to, to find that have large effects, but rare variants, uh, don't explain much of the heritability because they aren't, aren't found in many individuals. So the general point is that there's a ton of, uh, genetic influence over for type one diabetes. Yeah, and, um, and,
0: he, and it's quite heterogeneous, right, in the presentation. So it just yeah. makes uh, it a little more complicated.
1: I think, I mean, that's something that's, that's of course, being increasingly appreciated as well for, for type one and type two diabetes. Like, There's a lot of heterogeneity in the trade. And, and, and uh, um, you know, thinking about genetic risk relative to, to different forms of the disease, different ages of onset. I mean, these are all really interesting questions that are mostly open um and, and uh for sure yeah so i think as, as you start to separate the disease out into to subtypes and, and things that then that, that will further help clarify the genetic risk probably identify additional uh, loci for the for those uh subtypes as well yeah um but okay so so but we're uh largely interested in exploiting um uh, uh the the features of these genetic data in that they're highly polygenic so that many common many rare variants contribute to disease outside of MHC, again, most of these variants have relatively small effects on disease. So there are rare variants that have large large effects as well. Um, And uh, the key thing is that most of these risk variants are are not coding that you touched on, Monica, and uh, uh, likely affect gene regulation. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so so this is, uh, given that there's so many risk variants that affect the disease and most of them are are not coding, that represents uh, an incredible opportunity to take this information and overlay it with uh, uh, regulatory information uh, for different cell types and and tissues uh, uh, in the body to uh, try to find patterns, basically, for for where these risk variants fall relative to where regulatory elements are. So so we can exploit the extreme polygenicity of these traits and the fact that they're mostly non-coding um, to, to uh, use that to try to identify patterns that maybe tell us something about the cell types that, that are involved in the disease. So and that's exactly what, what we did in, in, in this, uh, this recent study. Um, so in, in order to identify regulatory elements in, in the genome, uh, i just briefly touch on uh, one of the key techniques that we use to, to do that. Um, um, so we're mapping the epigenome. So the epigenome is the kind of structure that sits around the, the genome that, that dictates when and where um, parts of the genome are, are being used, parts of the genome are accessible to, to proteins to, to regulate gene function. Uh, and One, one phenomenon uh, in particular that, that, that uh, we used in, in, in most of our work is called accessible chromatin. This is a hallmark of act, active regulatory elements where the chromatin is basically exposed for uh, regulatory proteins to come in and, and regulate gene, gene function. And, and There's numerous assays that have been developed that, that, that can uh, measure accessible chromatin as a readout for uh, uh, regulatory activity. The most popular one is ataxi, uh on the right, um, and that can tell you regions of the genome that that, that are active. Uh, now, up until very recently, that, that allowed you to maybe profile tissues or these cells that were sorted, like fact sorting. Um, but increasingly now, these assays are, are, are able to be done in, in, uh, from individual cells. So the single cell versions of these Ataxec assays uh, which give you these epigenomic profiles um, from from tens of thousands of cells. Mm-hmm. And so you can take the profiles from these cells, and, and um, one of the key uh, analytical steps in, in, in working with these data is to try to take all these profiles and then derive the specific cell types that that were within a tissue that that you were assaying with with these uh, these techniques. Um, and then you know from there you can. Uh, uh, Identify cell types, and then you can map the epigenome of individual cell types. And so that gives you uh, uh regulatory programs in, in many cell types that you can then intersect with genetic data. And it's again the combination of the two that, that represent a really powerful approach to understand that the cell types that are uh, potentially involved in the disease. Um, and this is from on the right here, this is from a paper that's on bioarchive that we were involved in, but uh, mostly from our collaborators, uh Bing Ren and, and the UCSD uh, Center for Epigenomics, where they did these single cell assays and, and, and uh, I think like 20, uh, 25 different human tissues and to regulatory programs in many, many human cell types. So you can get extremely detailed information about the regulatory programs of individual cell types, which is very valuable in terms of um, then intersecting with um, genetic data.
0: Yeah. So if you were to, um, you know, have access to, um, a blood repository of newly diagnosed patients at age 13, for instance, you'd be able to isolate the APCs um, or one APC, and, you know, one T cell or whatever, once you identified the T cell of interest, then, then you could, you could run them through these, um, these series and, and, and be able to get, get a, um, a snapshot of, of what's uh, what's happening at onset. Is that correct or no?
1: It, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so you can you can take yeah, blood or or any tissue, and and these assays allow you to well profile individual cells uh, uh, from the from blood or from the tissue, and then uh, from from that define the the cell types that, that were there. So so in, in peripheral blood, you could identify the immune cell populations that are were present uh, in terms of identifying, um, yeah. So well, cell so, cell types and then subtypes in terms of identifying perhaps like. Like antigen specific t-cells things like that 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 uh, um you can also do with single cell assays require slightly different assays uh 10x and uh, 10x is a sponsor the 10x makes um uh, kit, kits to, to profile for example like uh, a t-cell receptor in addition to i think rna so you can even get information about like um um, antigen-specific T cells and stuff like that, but but yeah, the, the, that's that that's the general uh, uh, um, the, the general gist. Yes, yeah, that you can take tissue from non-diseased individuals, which is what we did in, in this study, to just yeah. get a general profile of like uh, the the regulatory landscape of cell types. But you can also use it to uh, 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 profile patient samples, um, and we have several studies um, um, doing that. Um, Mostly in pancreas, uh, working with uh, Npod and, and, and Mark and, and, and uh, guys at Florida, um, but but also you know uh, it could be done from from peripheral blood.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. We were talking um, with a group a couple of weeks ago about like that it, that they would like to have more um, a, a, of a blood repository at diagnosis, so that these. You know so that these signatures could be captured so yeah this is really groundbreaking and you're i think you're kind of like on a frontier here setting this whole thing up and i would i would also say that to the postdocs and the graduate students this is like a really really sort of cutting edge work and interesting projects here um, and it seems like there's a lot of work to be done too
1: <laughs> to your question uh monica so, so yeah i mean i, I think profiling blood banks and, and other tissue repositories using these techniques is is, is a very very uh, promising way to uh to, to gain access to information of, uh, of changes that either occurred during disease or, or may precede uh, disease in, in specific cell types mm-hmm. uh, and, and the suite of assays for for single cell genomics is really really impressive and, and i mean that the, the rate at which the field is, is is changing and developing new types of assays are developed and like, paired assays like information uh for different types of uh assays from the same cell i mean the the uh the development of these technologies has really been incredible and, and uh, uh they all represent an amazing opportunity to uh to to, to understand disease um okay yeah. so in our case um so what what we uh we're doing is is like i was saying taking genetic information for type 1 diabetes um and uh, combining it with these cell type-specific epigenome maps with the goal of uh, uh, integrating the two to try to identify uh, cell types that that may uh, uh, be involved in in genetic risk of the disease. Um, And and so uh, on the GWAS side, on the left, um, uh, that study, like like you mentioned, represents the the, uh, largest genetic study of type 1 diabetes. Uh, ever done it? I think the previous uh, uh, GWASs before this were in the order of like maybe ten or 20, 30,000 samples. Um, yeah. So quite a bit larger in terms of number of samples. Even though actually most of the samples are uh, controls, so they're coming from like biobanks where you know the population rate of type one diabetes is quite low. So so most of the most of the samples in a biobank are are, are non-diabetic. Um, um, but but it's still quite a large number of samples that that, that gives us greater resolution to map new loci, in, in, in addition to specific variants of those loci that, that uh, cause disease. Also uh, the breadth of variants that we're able to test now is increasing, again, phenomenal resources that have been made available to predict genotypes in, in hundreds of millions of variants. Um, there's a resource called TopMed, um which is basically a service that you can upload your genotyping data to and then they they impute all these variants for you at the service and you get the data back so the resources for doing genetics are really incredible both in terms of biobanks but then also in terms of the ability to predict variants across the genome so these 60 million variants most of them are actually predicted genotypes not actual uh actual measured genotypes but they're they're in most cases very accurate right um so, so we combine the, the GWAS data with the, the uh, uh, epigenome maps. So, so one question we then ask is, is, do the variants that are associated with type 1 diabetes tend to fall in regulatory sites that are active in, in specific cell types from, from our maps? And so uh, this is showing enrichment of, of certain cell types for, for risk variants for type 1 diabetes. Um, so we see enrichment, as you would expect, for, for um, T cells, CD4 and CD8 T cells. Other immune cells, PDCs or uh, plasma cytoid dendritic cells, um, monocytes, uh, beta cells, which, which uh, are you known to contribute uh, intrinsically some risk of, of type 1 diabetes, and then also uh, evidence for enrichment of, of uh, cell types that perhaps haven't been implicated causally in the disease as the narin and ductal cells of the ex- and
0: pancreas. Yeah, and that's been, um, you know, we had a great state of the science with some young scientists, um, you know, uh, Teresa De- Teresa Mastracci and Emily Sims and others talking about um, how the exocrine pancreas is is really starting to show a role, and um, it's a fa- some fabulous work coming out of uh, Indiana, and and really really great. So I, I I'm, I'm interested, I'm very excited to see that they're they're here in your studies as well. The overlap is very interesting.
1: Yeah, I think there's there have been numerous studies recently that 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 have kind of coalesced around the evidence for for the exocrine uh, pancreas being um uh, well being changed in in disease but but you know through these studies potentially ha- having a role uh, uh causally in, in the development of the disease as well and um, and of course there's if you look back in literature and stuff that there's long been uh, uh observations of changes in the exocrine pancreas right so so it's, it's uh, some there right but but right i don't think had been either i mean either the technology wasn't there or the the ability to to follow up on, on some of those observations
0: well it is right. now thank you so much for doing all this excellent work
1: yeah so so but yeah no, I, I think this is one of many findings that that are starting to emerge that that suggest that dexrine pancreas is playing a role in, in in disease in addition to you know the, the beta cells and and, and uh, of course immune cell types and so, so that's a broad uh, uh, patterns, right? So we say, you know, broadly these cell types look like they're preferentially harboring risk of the disease. And so perhaps th- these are cell types that are that are involved in the disease and in the case of the exocrine cells that that, that was a relatively new finding. Um, and then we can also look at individual loci and say, well, what are the, the specific loci for disease that are driving those effects? Can we get a sense for, you know, what, what, what genes may be implicated within these cell types? Um, to, to to further you know pick apart uh, the mechanisms through which they, they may be contributing to disease. And in the case of um, exocrine cells, so we've highlighted different um, uh, disease-rich cell types and then specific loci that kind of mapped in, in, in information for these cell types. And for the exocrine cells, there were uh, numerous loci, many of which were, were fairly specific, like the risk variants were insights that were specific to exocrine cells and, and often other cell types, which, which made us feel further confident that that this is uh, perhaps the the relevant cell type here. Um, And these loci were also linked to genes uh, uh, that in many cases have very exocrine-specific function or or, uh, uh, expression, um, again, suggesting that that perhaps that the the, uh, genes are are influencing disease through exocrine cells. So just some examples I've highlighted here, uh, GP2 is a protein that uh, comprises the what are called the zymogen granules that are mm-hmm. secreted from acinar cells that that encode the uh, digestive enzymes. Uh, it's also involved in, I think, innate immunity as well. Uh, um, um, CTRB1 and 2 are, are digestive enzymes. Uh, CFTR was one we were particularly interested in because it, it's a quite famous.
0: Yeah, CFTR uh, and the uh, cystic fibrosis gene, right? So, I mean, that is really interesting.
1: Yeah, so so CFTR causes cystic fibrosis, and, and then there's also a form of uh, diabetes called CF-related diabetes, cystic fibrosis-related diabetes, which is increasingly common now that that uh, people um, with CF uh, tend to um, uh, tend to live longer, um, and that's a form of diabetes that that has thought to have been uh, so it's distinct from type one and type two diabetes, but uh, kind of shares features in common uh, common with both. Um, and so, yeah, so this suggests that, the, uh, you know, perhaps CFTR is contributing to type 1 diabetes risk as well through ductal cells um, in, in that case, and uh, at that locus in particular, we did a, a bunch of extra experimental work to show that, like, this site actually regulates CFTR in ductal cells and, and you know, validated that this uh, is predicted mechanisms uh, a, a bit more. But on the whole, you know, these loci and others that, that. um Uh, I'm not showing, you know, uh, uh, suggests that the excrement cells contributing to disease and highlight some genes and maybe some insight into through which these cells are contributing to disease. And so, but I I think the question then is how. how, how does regulation of these genes and exocrine cells contribute to, to disease? Uh, you know, We haven't proven that yet, right? I mean, these, these are patterns that we're observing and it seems fairly compelling in terms of the genes that are nearby these variants. Like some of these genes are, are only expressed in like us cells. And, and, and so it, it seems fairly likely that that the, those are the means through which they're contributing to disease, but we haven't proven in, in, in these cases. Um, but the, so the question is how regulation of these genes may contribute to, to disease risk. And like I said before, the long been reported abnormalities of exocrine pancreas and not only T1D, but autoantibody positive individuals, relatives of people who had type 1 diabetes, right? So these are changes that that precede uh, disease. In some cases, people who may ne- never develop disease, but these are, these are changes that are occurring before disease is happening. Um, but I, I think A wasn't, you know, quite known or appreciated and, and maybe still an open question to what extent that's a consequence of, of disease processes caused by something else or that's actually contributing somehow to the development of the disease.
0: Yeah, uh, but it's so important to actually establish the etiology of the, bi- I mean, of the disease in terms of the biology. I think it's hundred years after really the, the you know, discovery of insulin, which, you know, is, is great, but it's also, there's still so many unknowns about the actual, Ideology. So, I, I think you your your work here is really pushing that um, or opening opening several doors to to really follow up on what is sort of like the timeline, what is the cha- what what are the changes, and and how can we really appreciate you know the how this thing manifests.
1: Right. Yeah. And so yeah. No. Exactly. Yeah. And, and thinking through the potential mechanisms to, through which they contribute to disease. So one we well, noted is, is that so many of the genes that are implicated are, are either digestive enzymes to, to ctrb1 and 2 and there's another gene cell which is uh actually quite a famous gene in diabetes genetics uh cel um and uh which is another digestive enzyme or they're involved in their secretion cftr or gp2 and, and, and things like this and, and also uh, we noticed that many of these same variants that are associated with type 1 diabetes risk also have some evidence for being associated with pancreatic disease so like pancreatitis, pancreatic cancer, um, maybe like pancreatic cysts uh, but like you know diseases of the exocrine pancreas. Um,
0: One thing and- that's kind of weird is that I think that having type 1 diabetes is protective against having pancreatic cancer that's like a weird nuance but
1: yeah right I think so I think for the uh, I'm not sure if it's pancreatic cancer. I think for pancreatitis, I think most of the risk alleles for type 1 diabetes were also associated with increased risk of pancreatitis. But I, uh, I, I think that was the case, but I actually don't quite remember. But yeah, the direction of effect, uh, it was a bit uh, um, off the top of my head. I'm not quite clear. I mean, this is the CFTR. Variants so, so the directions are fairly consistent across these diseases, but for other ones it, it, there may be different directions of effect. But but they're um, the variants tend to have some association in, in either direction with, um, with pancreatic diseases. Also in some cases with type two diabetes, um, which is another interesting question: the relationship between type one and type two that that we're quite interested in. Yeah. Um, but uh, so to. to me and Natasha suggested that the potential mechanism through which these genes contributed to disease was maybe through promoting subclinical inflammation, like subclinical pancreatitis-like phenotypes, which could potentially promote immune infiltration and then, you know, contribute to, in addition to many other risk factors, of course, the the, the onset of disease. But that's speculation. Um, that that uh, But, you know, I, I think that that's now all to come in terms of understanding exactly how these genes are, are contributing to, to disease through the exocrine pancreas and why. Um, and I, I think this, there's probably a lot of interest in biology to, to learn um, through this. So um, yeah, okay. So that's it. So, that said, so I, you know, the general gist is, is using large-scale genetic data, many risk variants for the disease, most are non-coding, leveraging the, the, the features of, of those data in combination with these really detailed cell type maps that together can give us insight into the cell types that, that are involved in, in disease. And as the maps get even more refined, the larger data sets, I'm sure, you know, that the, the refinement of, of the cell types involved in disease and maybe even the subtypes of, you know, for immune cells in particular, um, their roles in disease will, will, will be further clarified. Um, so just the last thing I, I wanted to, to highlight, uh, and I mentioned this on the um, panel, we had the other. The other day is that all this data is being collected in this um, uh, large uh, uh, resource called the type one diabetes knowledge portal, yeah. um, which is both genetic data and also <clears throat> functional genomics data, so like epigenomic data, um, functional screens, like, like you know, a, a, a lot of information that, that tells you about the function of the genome and also gene function that, that can be used. Um, to uh, uh, try to understand uh, the function of risk variants associated with the disease and, and the genes involved, um, and, and so uh, you know, I hope people uh, find this resource helpful. Um, yeah, yeah, we've been
0: shouting out about it. You know, is this is the ultimate goal to sort of create a consensus here?
1: Yeah, yeah, a consensus in terms of like, um, I mean, it, yeah, I mean, part of the goal is to just aggregate. The data that exists, like in the genetic space for for type 1 diabetes, for for example. Um, It's great. And also, you know, genomic data. I mean, there's so much genomic data, epigenomic data, and so many regulatory maps in immune cells and stimulated conditions and and other conditions and disease samples, non disease, uh, different types of epigenomic data. I mean, it's really overwhelming, actually, the the amount of data that's available, all of which has value in terms of of understanding genome function and then, then risk variant. Uh, activities so so a lot of it is just collecting all this data and, and uh, but also making it available to people to, to be able to use in a way that's straightforward enough so so that that they can actually uh, 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 gain some insight from it right so so it's collecting all this data but then providing tools that that that, that make interpretation of of all of it together. Um, uh, more straightforward, and there's many other. I mean, this is like a network. It's not just type one diabetes. Many other diseases yeah. uh, under this common metabolic disease uh, remit, um, as well. So you can you know learn more about you know variants associated with type one diabetes, or they associated with uh, other traits, and and uh, you know like knowing like that the, the uh, pleiotropy of, of these variants is quite useful as well. Um, there's
0: overlap on several of the autoimmune, you know, diseases and and uh, metabolic diseases. I wonder, so if for a new user, um, they, they, they can pretty much navigate this on their own. Is there, um, any kind of, uh, you know, guidance or, or help for them to navigate it? That's question one. And then the second question is if they do, if they've created a repository of their own or some kind of, um, data of their own, can they upload it and add to this developing portal?
1: So, so yeah, so the first point, so so yes, there, there are help pages and help tools. Um, and then there's also in the bottom right here, there's a, a webinar that we had to release the, the portal, which details the functionality of the site, the different types of data that are going into it, both in genetic and um, genomic space. Um, so so that, that may be helpful for some people. Um, um to, to watch it if they want more information about how to use the site uh, but yeah there's also quite extensive uh, uh, help uh, uh, on the site itself to, to navigate um um and there's multiple yeah there's numerous ways that you can interact with it you could search for specific genes specific variants regions of the genome you can look at the trait level like if you want to know for example for type one diabetes, like what are the, the uh, uh, cell types that have genomic information that are most enriched for the trait? Like there are, there are disease centric pages that let you look at, oh, here are the most enriched cell types, maybe T cells and you know beta cells and, and maybe exocrine cells as well. Like, so you can even get that level of information. So, so there's numerous numerous uh, facets of the site that allow you to um, to access this information. I, I think the webinar you know, would be a good way for, for people who are interested in learning more to, to get started, because that, that kind of details the high level um, features of the site and the data. Um, if people want to add data, that that is great. I mean, I, I think we're, we're hoping to um, uh, include as many data sets that, that are relevant to type 1 as, as possible uh, in this how, resource. How many
0: do you have on there now for type 1?
1: So for type one, it's, so it's our study that was the, uh, in, in nature, uh, and then, uh, numerous studies from, from, uh, Steve, I mean, Steve's uh, been involved with type one diabetes genetics for, for, you know, it's uh, so long and, and it's really one of the, the primary stewards of the, the uh, type one diabetes genetics and along with, um, John Todd. And, um, so they have, they have numerous studies that, that they've, uh, uh, put together over the years. They have a recent paper in nature genetics, um, which was, uh, uh Multi-ethnic study uh, that that data is there, and that they have like their previous studies from from years before in there. Um, and we're, we're like we actually go through literature and like find other genetic studies and like reach out to people to try to get their their data as well. And uh, um, but I'm sure we've missed some. So but so I think the genetic space that that we have some data sets from from mostly from our groups, but including more over time would, would, would be the goal. Um, uh, and also from biobanks as well, like like FinnGen and, and um, I think Japan Biobank to release summary data for for uh, um, their phenotypes as well. So, so aggregating data from biobanks is also part of this goal. Um, but if people have data, then please reach out to us if they have uh, genetic data as well as epigenomic data that they think would be useful from immune cells or pancreas or other. Um, other relevant tissues than than um, you know we're, we're we're really interested in we're in, in, um, uh, um, working with people that that have those types of data as well to to include it.
0: Yeah, no, that's very important. This is a great project and it's um, growing. And I think you know with you and Steve Rich and I guess from the Broad Noel Burton Jason Flanick, this is really um, you're creating a really excellent toolkit. Oh, okay, good. So yeah, I just wanted to just sort of say. You know, so just to change gears for one more second here, what do you make of the Fossman lab uh, newest results presented at ADA? I mean, in terms of, you know, like, um, it, it, it's a pretty big claim, you know, BCG restores and resets the immune system and corrects the overmethylation of FOXB3. Um, but just to speak to that idea rather than the data, what what is your thought about that idea?
1: Yeah, so, so I think the idea of modifying the epigenome uh, therapeutically is, is very interesting. And I think, um, particularly as we find regions of the genome that are active in certain cell types, immune cells, beta cells, other disease-relevant cell types, that you also know harbor Risk variants for the disease, so you know that modifying that site is causally contributing to to the disease. Uh, you know, in most cases, those variants have quite small effects on disease, right? So, so that's that's always one of the criticisms of like human genetic work in the, so generally is that oh, the effects are very small, but but the the variant itself may have a small effect. But but um, the a you know that it's that it's contributing causally to the development of the disease, which is useful information. B, um, you may be able through you know. Inhibiting the site or activating the site, depending on the direction the variant uh, operates, uh, to create a larger effect. Like maybe the variant has a subtle effect on the activity of the site and subtle effect on gene expression, but if you inactivate a whole site or you activate a site, that may create a more dramatic change that 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 could um, uh, uh, that, that that could uh, um, have a much larger effect than, than the variant alone. But I, I think identifying parts of the genome that harbor risk that are uh, potentially modifiable uh is is a quite promising area for therapeutics uh yeah. and I, you know I, I think that that you know um those recent data you know suggesting that that uh, uh methylation of b 3 you know is the mechanism through through which that that um uh, uh, that, that that therapeutic is working um you know I, I don't know specifically too much about about that but i i think that general that general um the general area is, is, I think, very promising moving forward, particularly again for, for parts of the genome that you know are harboring risk, so you know that, that they have some causal role in the disease that to me that this seems like that they might make very attractive therapeutic targets.
0: Yeah, when I think of the genetic work, um, or I guess the genetic insults or fragility that's there, it almost seems like almost like a, a lock on a safe, you know you dial and then you hit the number and then you have to dial back and hit that number, and then you have to dial back and hit that number, and then the disease begins. So it's like a temporal plus uh, a direct hit.
1: Yeah, and you need know, a lot of them as well. I mean, there's a lot of risk factors. Like everybody has some, some large combination of all these risk factors. I mean, of course, yeah. there is, you know, MHC, right? It's a. I mean, that's a different... Different thing, right? But but beyond the MHC, like all these uh, additional risk factors, everybody's inheriting some combination of them. And yeah, it's modulating your risk in, in in uh in some direction. And you know, there there have been some really nice studies for other diseases that have shown like on the extremes, like some people, you know, by chance inherit a lot of risk alleles, or some people by chance inherit a lot of protective alleles so those people can can either be at very high risk for disease or, or very protective for disease but that, that's a, a you know a, a small uh, percentage of, of total population um so yeah for most people it's you know it's 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 again beyond mhc i, I think it's dialing the the risk uh in in, in uh, uh, um, subtle directions um mm-hmm. at the same time you know i mean something that that uh may have people may be working on for type 1. I haven't really seen it uh, too much, but uh, it's possible that people working on this is trying to, like say, for example, you find all these risk variants in exocrine cells. Mm-hmm. You think about or maybe have, you know, there's a lot of uh, risk in beta cells as well. So maybe you take like individuals who, who happen to carry a lot of risk in beta cells, and, you know, they may have a particular form of the disease because, you know, the, uh, because maybe they happen to inherit a lot of beta cell risk alleles or maybe some people inherit a lot of exocrine alleles and so that may be a way to kind of subdivide yeah some people based on like put
0: them into different baskets and then examine their trajectory, I guess.
1: Yeah so that I mean' that's, yeah that's worked a, a bit for type 2 diabetes again I haven't seen it too much for, for type one yet, but you would imagine that like you know uh, parents that affect genes within the same cell type, you know you know maybe there's some uh, uh, synergistic effects between all those genes acting within the same cell type and that may put you in a certain risk. Risk category and and uh, you know leads to different effects and complications and it, you know even if it doesn't it, 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 even if it doesn't help you um, uh, prevent the disease it may be useful for understanding people's risk of complications later on and how you, how you might want to manage their their the treatment of their disease.
0: All roads lead to personalized medicine. Okay. I say it because uh, it's going to be tough to fund it. But anyway, that so Tim Arthur is asking Kyle. Great work. I saw you have beta cells subsetting into insulin high and insulin low and that there's the T1D GWAS enrichment in high and not in low. Do these beta cell subsets differ beyond insulin production? Do you think they could be distinguished in bulk RNA by cellular deconvolution? Same question for the other rare cell types that you pick up with single cell sequencing. That's a good question.
1: That's a very good question. So so our other paper was in nature genetics, so, so that was the largely the focus of that paper was identifying these subsets of um, uh, endocrine cells based on their their epigenome. So uh, uh, for beta cells, there were distinct uh, subsets that we found for, uh, um, uh, uh, they had many things that distinguished them. One of the most notable features that distinguished them was that uh, for beta cells, like one subset had high insulin, uh, activity. The other had low insulin activity. We also found the same phenomenon in alpha cells and delta cells like low, high, low glucagon, high, low uh, somatostatin. Mm. Um, but, but there were numerous differences between these subtypes. And it uh, seemed like it was potentially related to um, yeah, insulin production or hormone regulation. Well, yeah, hormone production, hormone regulation. Um, and then uh, on the other side, maybe like signaling response or stress response um, you know, and so big, we thought this related to, you know, like subsets of cells they are they're perhaps making insulin versus those that, that were responding to some signal or, or undergoing some stress response. Um, but that was all at the epigenomic level. So it, uh, even though we tried to tie it to uh, uh, heterogeneity that, that's been described in gene expression, uh, there were similar findings in, in, in single cell gene expression studies of different subsets of, of beta cells and other endocrine cell types. Um, um, Newer studies where we have actually matched data between depth genome and gene expression, um, I think will allow us to to maybe resolve exactly what these different subsets mean at uh, at a resolution that that we haven't quite been able to yet. But I think crudely, yeah, it it seems like they're 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 uh, related to like hormone production versus signaling response, uh, stress response. But but I, I think understanding exactly what they're doing and, and how meaningful the, the, the heterogeneity is in, in terms of function um, are, are things that, that we're actively uh, working on and interested in. Uh, for the other part of the question, so using that to deconvolute um, bulk data, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, these profiles are very useful for, for deconvoluting bulk data sets, uh, um, distinct subtypes of cell types, rare cell types. Um, um, I mean, I, I think we've had some success in, in using these profiles to deconvolute bulk um, epigenomic data, and in a similar way, uh, you know, could, could easily be used to deconvolute uh, bulk RNA-seq data. Um, and uh, I don't think we've tried it with, with this, these substates yet, but, but uh, in general, it, you know, it, it has been uh, relatively uh, um, uh, straightforward for us to deconvolute bulk profiles using single cell, uh, single cell maps.
0: Okay. Thank you for that. And I would just, I know in the interest of time, I don't want to steal any more time for you, but uh, there's one more question. Jennifer Wynn, she says, great talk. It's really nice to see evidence implicating exocrine pancreas with diabetes. Have you also seen whether T1D-associated variants that are enriched in exocrine are also associated with two, uh, t- T2D? That's cool too.
1: Well, that's a good question. So, um, so one locus, CTRB1, So that that is also known type two diabetes locus, and the effects, of the variants are opposite. So the risk allele for type one diabetes is protective for type two diabetes, um, and actually for CFTR as well. I don't, I don't know if it's a known type two diabetes locus, but uh, it has some significance for type two diabetes. And I think the effects, uh, as far as I can remember or opposite there as well. So so uh, yeah, so, so some of these loci do affect both type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and at least seems um, superficially, uh, just like looking at, at them so far, that that um, it, they may have opposite effects on, on the two forms of the disease. Uh, there was a study last year, maybe uh, the year before, that, that um, argued for uh, a role for exocrine pancreas in type 2 diabetes. Um, I can't remember the reference off the top of my head. Um, um um but that that uh, the mechanism there i think was through like exocrine signaling of beta cells so so maybe that like the exocrine pancreas is contributing to both forms of the disease perhaps through different mechanisms and so so maybe that's why like the the risk loads may have opposite effects but i i think that that it's certainly the case that there, there's some relationship there and understanding that um uh, uh it is i, I think uh, uh will be of high interest and it seems quite complex given that the in some cases, appear to have opposite effects on the two diseases.
0: Yeah, maybe it's contextual. Um, so yeah, yeah, I I I think this has just been amazing. Um, thank you so much for for joining us and talking to us, and we wish you all the best in just moving the ball forward even further, which I think you're definitely poised uh, to do, and you know, in a great position to do. And I would, I don't know, are you looking for postdocs? Maybe a shout out to our audience. <laughs> We're
1: always looking for postdocs. I know. Tim and Tim Jennifer are grad students in the lab next door. So I I know they're already uh
0: oh, fantastic.
1: <laughs> a short hop over. But uh um but uh, yeah, we're always looking for, for postdocs and, and and uh people who are interested in, in genomics and um um and, and genetics. So, so that yeah, that, that'd be great. And, and like I said, for the knowledge portal, you know, people who are interested in contributing data, who have genetic data sets, epigenomic data, functional data, like we're, we're Increasingly interested in like like CRISPR screen type data like that that's very useful for understanding gene function and stuff like this. So so anybody who wants to participate, um, I I think that will only increase the value of the resource over time. So so please.
0: Absolutely, it will. Yeah. Thank you again, and uh, we'll hope to talk to you in the near future.
1: Yeah. Thank you, Monica. Yeah.